Luke chapter 11, beginning in verse 1, this is what God's word says. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. Amen. Let's pray together. Our gracious Father, we ask now that you would teach us to pray, teach us to think, teach us to live, that we might honor you with our lives, and that we might bring glory to your most holy name, the name of Jesus Christ, and that name we pray. Amen. Well, we return this morning to our study of the Lord's Prayer for the third and final time to finish up the remaining portion in verses 3 and 4. Uh, we began a couple of weeks ago with the amazing opening address uh, of calling God Father. And in this one word is really the summary of the entire gospel that unholy sinners like us could, could not only approach the holy, unapproachable God, but even to relate to Him in the most intimate relationship of love as children to their perfect Father in heaven, in and through Christ alone. As Jesus said in John fourteen six, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And then last week we saw the first of these two main sections of this model prayer in verse 2, which teaches us to seek first the glory and kingdom of God. It is training us to live God-centered lives, whereby we are daily seeking to get our eyes off of ourselves and onto God, because that's what we were created for, and that's what we were saved for. Again, remember that the Lord's Prayer primarily teaches us how to think which is then to spill over into the expression of those thoughts in prayer. And now today we proceed to this latter portion in verses 3 and 4, where the Lord's Prayer concludes with a focus on our needs and concerns. And off the bat, we should pause and be amazed that God cares at all about our needs. And the Lord's Prayer could have stopped after verse 2. Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, amen. And, well, without any consideration for ourselves and our well-being, that would have been entirely appropriate because God's glory is rightfully at the center of the universe and thus is the center of our lives. And yet the fact that Jesus teaches us to pray for our needs, it shows what God is like, namely that he is truly as he says he is. Our Father. Here we see a vivid picture of His character. Such fatherly love and care for His children. But what we must also observe is this. That because God is our Father. And because as believers we are His little children. This means that we need Him to tell us. And to teach us what we really need. We think we know what we need. But we don't actually know very well. And he needs to be the one to define our real needs for us. You know, my son, who's a baby, he just turned 10 months old. He is very adamant 
about his self-perceived needs. The man knows what he wants, and the man knows what he thinks he needs. What he firmly believes to be the most important necessities for his happiness and the welfare. He's a man of conviction, I can tell already. And some of his deep convictions are that he needs, he needs to be allowed to jump off the bed and smash his face to the ground. Because it looks fun. He needs to climb to the highest ledge that he sees, even though he can't even walk yet, and he's for sure going to fall off and hurt himself. He needs to satisfy his curiosity by touching sharp utensils and putting them in his mouth because, because they are shiny. And I would be a very unloving father if I gave him over to his misinformed desires and will. But of course, it's out of my most tender love for him that I don't give him what he wants, what he thinks he needs, even if he cries and gets upset that I take him away from getting what he thinks he needs. But you see, in the same way, we must understand that we, you and I, we are totally dependent on God to inform us as to what are our real needs, to define for us what is actually essential in life for actual well-being because we are such little spiritual children. And to mature in Christ is to grow in knowing and thinking according to God's thoughts. And that's what this final section of the Lord's Prayer is doing for us. It's conditioning our thoughts and recalibrating our minds to know ourselves truly as God knows us truly. And we begin first with the most basic needs of life as Jesus teaches us to pray in verse 3. Give us each day our daily bread. Now, some have tried to spiritualize this verse, saying that what Jesus really means is for us to pray for our daily dose of spiritual bread, the bread of life, that is, to commune with Christ. Well, it's all good and everything, but I don't think we need to make this verse say more than what it plainly says. I mean, we'll have plenty of opportunities to consider our spiritual need in the next verse, in verse 4. But here, it just means what it says. Father, give us bread for the day. You know, we don't need to overcomplicate this because the simplicity and the absolute humility of this prayer is the whole point that we need God to provide for us even bread for each day. Now, obviously, Jesus' focus is not bread, literally for the sake of bread, as in sourdough or wheat, but bread is representing food in general since bread was the staple food in biblical times. But even more broadly speaking than that, bread represents food, but food represents what? Just the most most basic source of nourishment and sustenance for physical life and function. This is our most essential necessities for physical survival. And so this prayer is teaching us to be entirely dependent on God just to have another day to live. And when we really learn to pray like this regularly, God sanctifies us in two critical ways. First is that it instills in us true humility. You know, it's not a secret that we live in one of the most affluent areas of the entire planet. And we have every cutting-edge technology commonly available to us, every luxury at our disposal. And that's not to guilt trip us as though it's a sin to 
have been born in the 21st century and to live here in this region. But it's to say that we, out of everyone on earth, take basic necessities for granted. I mean, let's be honest. It is hardest for us to pray this and sincerely mean it. Father, please provide food for today. When's the last time you actually thought like that and prayed like that? We're very self-sufficient people, and that's to our detriment. I mean, look, now we have every food option available. I mean, we live in a generation where young folks just, you know, tap a few buttons on their phone and someone brings food from a restaurant to their front door, dashing to get it to your door if you catch my drift. And can you imagine if a bunch of common citizens from the medieval times found a time machine, went into it, and came out here into the 21st century, to the year 2022, and they saw what the average teenager or college student was doing, ordering food from their phone. They, they, they would think we were all kings and queens. I mean, uh, how did you acquire so many servants at your beck and call? Uh, do they all live inside that little rectangular box and you tap to wake them up? Or How does it work? They would be amazed. That's the generation in which we live. We have everything. But look, it doesn't matter what generation you find yourself in. God's word is unchanging and timeless. And he wants all his people to pray. In every age and epoch, Father, please provide even food for the day. Why? Because it keeps us humble. And it reminds us that there is no area of our lives over which God is not the sovereign ruler and gracious provider. And if he should ever withhold his providing hand, we would all fall over dead in an instant because he supplies even every breath that you have been taking for the last 60 seconds. And this is why, you see, as believers, we pray before we eat. It's a good habit, not just to do the routine mindlessly, but the content of our prayer and the spirit of our hearts should be this very simple thought. Father, thank you because you are the one that provided this food. You alone provided it, even if I bought it. Because even this money I spent to dine at this restaurant, you provided this money through the job that you provided for me. Or through the retirement funds that you have enabled me to save up for. You've given me so much. Even this meal I cooked for myself. You blessed me with the culinary skills necessary to make this happen and edible. Everything. No matter what it is. Everything. All streams from you. The fountain of every blessing and mercy. May it be that the richest and most financially secure believer in this room would learn to pray this daily with the same humility and lowliness as the brother and sister in a third world country who is genuinely unsure of how the next meal would come about. Because the point is this, no matter where we are, who we are, what we have, we are all, every one of us, equally at the mercy of God's merciful hands. We are all nothing apart from what he graciously chooses to provide. And it is this humility that will keep us mindful at every moment, that every breath 
is but a gift from God. Which leads us to the other thing that this prayer teaches us, which is contentment and thankfulness. Notice what Jesus doesn't say to pray for. He doesn't tell us to pray for luxuries. Not because luxuries are sinful in and of themselves. They should be received with thanksgiving. But because luxuries are not essential. That's why we call them luxuries. And the language of this prayer in verse 3 is, Give us each day our daily bread, which could also be rendered as, Give us the bread sufficient for this day. See, by this, our Lord is training us to be grateful for what are true necessities of life. Not to sound cliche, I hate sounding cliche, but it is true. We need to learn to count our blessings. Because far too often, our desires and our prayers and our longings tend to be focused on and just fixated on what we don't have. Rather than thanking God for what we do have, what we have been given. And yet we have taken them all for granted as though we as sinners were entitled to anything from God. As it is commonly said, this prayer teaches us to remember our needs rather than our greeds. Now think about all the years that the Israelites spent wandering in the wilderness. For 40 years, through every single second, God gave to the Israelites just enough. Never giving them too much, never giving them too little, but just enough for each and every day. Why? Isn't God full of abundant blessings? Couldn't God have sent down Ruth's Chris steak from heaven? Or LB steak, the one over there in San Ramon? Well, sure he could. He could have done anything. But he gave them just enough. Why? To make them know that man does not live by bread alone but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. To teach them to trust God's word of promise, to depend on Him, to learn that He is sufficient and trustworthy because all of these good things come from Him. And that's why God gave just enough for each day, any more, and they would have gone astray in in the pride of self-sufficiency. You see, we always think that we need more than what we have. But Christian, you must believe by faith that God has given you exactly what you need today. Because the Lord is your shepherd and you want not. That is to say, you lack nothing. Your present condition and circumstance is exactly down to the T what your Father has lovingly ordained for you, including all the trials and difficulties and uncertainties. And when things get frustrating and you struggle with discontent, you must learn to take a step back and wonder, what is God teaching me through this? What sin in my heart is He graciously at work to purge me of? What area of my life is He gently loosening my grip of. And so he tells us to pray, please give us food for the day. Please provide for every necessity of life because 
My life is in your hands. And our comfort is knowing that those hands that hold his children are the hands of infinite love and intimate care. So much so that he cares even about our physical and bodily needs. As Psalm 103 says, that as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are but dust. He knows the frailty of our humanity. And so to be sure, God calls us to pray and seek daily provision for every one of our earthly needs. But we must not stop there. The problem is that so often we do stop there. We know to recognize the importance of our physical, bodily, and earthly well-being, but much to the neglect of our spiritual well-being. Notice how the Lord's Prayer ends in verse 4 with petitions for our souls. Forgive us our sins, it says. Now, of course, this is the most urgent spiritual need for every human being, isn't it? To be forgiven of their sins before God. Because all have sinned and fall short of God's glory. If you're here this morning and you have never been forgiven by God of your sin, you must confess your sin and receive His grace and mercy by faith. There is nothing on earth more urgent than this. Even if a nuclear missile is headed right here to 2260, I got the address wrong. This is more urgent. Actually, if, if a bomb were hitting us, we really probably should pray this more than anything. You need to get right with God. You need to be reconciled to Him. Because when this life is over and you don't know when you will live another day, you don't know when your last breath will be. When this life is over, you will stand before God and you will have to answer for your sin. And if you remain in your present state of not having received pardon and atonement for all of your sins, you will be unable to withstand His righteous judgment. You will realize that you have no answer for your sin and you are not as good as you thought you were. And you will be consigned to the eternal punishment of God's justice and wrath that we all deserve as sinners. But listen, God, in the immensity of His love and grace for sinners, He sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to take upon Himself the punishment that is meant for sinners, that He might rescue them from His own justice and wrath. And that is why Jesus suffered so much why he endured such agony on the cross, even unto death, because he was taking the place of sinners whom he had come to save. And on the cross, it's not just that Jesus died. We are all going to die. That's not what makes the cross so, so particular. But it's that on the cross, he received the full outpouring of infinite divine Judgment and anger meant for sinners like you and me. And he drank the cup of God's wrath dry so that not a drop would fall upon all who confess their sin and trust in him. This is the good news of God's mercy and grace in Christ. All that God requires for you, non-Christian, is not that you atone for your own sins, 
Not that you try to better yourself and brush up your moral resume. You cannot. It's already done, ruined for good. But all that he requires is that you simply confess, acknowledge that you are a guilty sinner, that you could never save yourself, and trust in all that he has done to save sinners like you and me. This is man's greatest need, to be forgiven of sin. Now, for all the believers here, as we look at this petition in verse 4, most likely you are wondering this very common question. Why do Christians need to ask for forgiveness regularly if God has forgiven them already in Christ? You know, I remember when I was in college, a very subtle cult arose and took many campuses by storm upon this exact premise. They were saying, if you're a Christian, you have already become perfect and sinless. So you never need to repent. Don't ever ask for forgiveness. That's wrong. It's wrong that you should ever repent as a Christian. Don't you know that the cross is sufficient? God has already made you perfect. So you never need to repent. Never worry about sin. Just let it be. Forget about it. It's, it's, it's all in the past. Even your present future sins, so don't, don't, don't let it bother you. That sounds a little convincing, doesn't it? Well, there's some correct theology mixed in there a little bit. The, the sufficiency of the atonement, justification by faith. Oh, the devil is very crafty. Do you realize that the devil, when he chooses, when he desires to, to destroy a man, he doesn't give a silver platter of poison. He gives a nice glass of delicious drink, a favorite beverage, 99% pure with one drop of cyanide sufficient to kill you. Why? That you might take it. That's how he operates. You see, the problem with this little cult that I just mentioned is that these people had no biblical understanding of the doctrine of sanctification and no understanding of biblical literacy, for that matter, because Paul himself explicitly said in Philippians chapter 3, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on. You see, the problem is this. This group of people didn't understand that indeed it is finished. Jesus' death on the cross fully paid for all sin, past, present, and future. And we have total security and assurance of eternal life upon repentance and saving faith. At the same time, it's not that when we profess saving faith and are converted, God immediately glorifies us with the resurrected body incapable of sinning and makes us instantaneously invulnerable to sin from that point on. That's later. That's in the future. No, the Christian who has been born again still struggled with indwelling sin. The residue of his corruption in the flesh. Sin is dead, but it remains with its residual effects. And he remains in his flesh in which God has ordained that the Christian remain in this present age. But that's the glory of the Christian life. That out of a born-again love for God, that we are now able and willing and desiring to wage war against our own flesh. Because we now hate the old sinful nature with its habits and inclinations. And it serves to show how desirable and praiseworthy God is. That we would stop at nothing to draw closer to Him 
that we would not even stop at killing our own flesh, as it were. You see, the evidence of true conversion is not that you never sin, but it's that now you hate sin. Regeneration is not the birth of a new perfected person who is impeccably holy. That is not what the Bible teaches. Regeneration is the birth of a new holy disposition, a new desire, a new gravitational pull towards God, whereas before it was against and away from God. It's a new holy disposition that was never there before. That is to want to love God, to want to know God, and to want to obey Him. And thus holiness is being perfected from one degree of glory to another for the Christian throughout his life, even through all the imperfections of that progress. See, practically speaking, the greatest evidence of the new birth is that you indeed struggle against sin, that you actively fight against it. And when you fall into sin and you get knocked down, you grieve over it and you hate it. You want so badly to conquer it and mortify it because your eyes have been opened to see sin for what it is, despicable and heinous. And it testifies to the amazing grace of God that that not only He saves the sinner from his spiritual death, but that He sustains the Christian in his spiritual life. Through every struggle and stumbling on the path to glory, as He covers our every sin by Jesus' finished work, and He empowers us through, through this sufficient grace of His, and His tender mercy in the gospel that are new every morning, always there to cover us. And so coming back to the question, let's tackle it head on. Why do Christians need to repent? Because Christians sin. Period. Yes, in Christ, all sins, past, present, and future are fully paid for by His death. But we nonetheless have sinned in the past as believers. We do sin in the present as believers. And we will sin in the future as believers to our great dismay. And whenever we sin, if we feel no grief or sorrow, something is very wrong. That would indicate a dead conscience. If we feel no remorse, it would be as though we simply made peace with sin. And we have no problem with it. And we just let it be, as the cult teaches. And have no aversion to it. And if we behaved and reacted in such a way, there would be nothing to set us apart from a non-Christian still spiritually dead in sin. And so, for the Christian to pray regularly, Father, forgive me. That is the most natural and organic reflex of his new nature in Christ. And I don't understand how a Christian wouldn't think to say, forgive me. It's the most instinctual expression of love. In a relationship where one party has the unfortunate tendency to dishonor and offend the other. The spirit is indeed willing to love God perfectly. But the flesh is very weak. And so our love and devotion is marred by our imperfection and sin. And we are grieved by it because we do love God. Look, if you live your whole marriage never saying I'm sorry to your spouse, 
you may have to wonder if you love your spouse at all. Because by virtue of you being a sinner, you sometimes do things to hurt your spouse, even if you, you wish not to. But when you say, I'm sorry, you're, understand this, you're not saying this because you're afraid that this marriage is over, or that you're afraid that, that, that the security of your marriage is, is contingent on you meeting the quota of how many times you say, forgive me. No, you've already entered into the binding covenant of marital union. Therein lies all the security. But you instinctively say, I'm sorry, not from a negative impulse, out of fear of consequences, but you say, I'm sorry, out of the positive expression of love. That is to say, I'm so sorry that I grieved you. Because what I want, my heart's desire, is for your joy, to, to bless you, to, ha- to have such happiness together. But despite my genuine desires, I am prone to sin, nonetheless. And sometimes I bring you hurt. Forgive me, because in fact I love you. That is a healthy marriage. And that is how we are to relate to God as believers. Forgiveness is not something that we ask for out of fear of losing our salvation or as though we need to earn our salvation continually as, or, or that we, we need to atone for our sins and cleanse ourselves. But asking God daily for forgiveness is the most heartfelt expression of our love for Him on this side of eternity as believers who are still being sanctified and being perfected in holiness with all of the stumbling and bumbling along the way. And so the believer's daily repentance is really the heart of praise that sings, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Father, because of my indwelling sin, I have this proclivity to wander away from you, the God that I have come to know, to trust, and to love. Forgive me, help me, and keep me in your name. That is the beauty of Christian repentance. It is an essential facet of worship and affection for God. And as we are daily being renewed by the mercy of God, we must be sure to examine our hearts that we are being changed in the likeness of God who is merciful. Because this petition continues, forgive us our sins for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. Now clearly this is not teaching that we earn forgiveness from God by how much we forgive others. To interpret it that way would be to ignore the entire rest of the Bible that salvation is by grace alone in Christ alone. So here the words are not talking about how to earn forgiveness from God, but about demonstrating the evidence that we have been forgiven by God. And this is exactly what Jesus teaches elsewhere in the parable of the 10,000 talents in Matthew chapter 18. Long story short, in that parable, Jesus tells about a servant who owed the king 10,000 talents. And look, as believers here today in this culture years removed from, from, from that age, we have no idea what this means at first glance. 10,000 talents, what is that, like $10,000? Do you know how much one talent is? One talent was about 20 years worth of wages. 20 annual salaries. 10,000 talents is 200,000 years worth of wages. 
Even if you put a conservative estimate of $50,000 a year as an annual salary as today's equivalent, that is the equivalent today of owing the king $10 billion. Now the great mystery is how in the world did you get into debt $10 billion? What, what, how many private jets did you buy? But that's beside the point. You owe, you're $10 billion in debt. You will never be able to pay it back. But the parable continues with the merciful king forgiving this servant of all of that debt, which the servant can never repay. But afterwards, this same servant, having been forgiven of what was practically, virtually infinite debt, he goes and finds one of his co-workers who owed him a hundred denarii, which let's say it was about $15,000, and he chokes him and demands repayment. And the co-worker asks for some mercy, just give me a little bit of time. I will repay, but just give me time. But he mercilessly refuses and throws him into prison. And when the king found out, he said, you wicked servant. I forgave you of $10 billion and you couldn't even think to show an ounce of patience to this man who owed you chump change in comparison. I will put you into prison, you godless ingrate. You see, this parable is making the point. How can you refuse to forgive others while happily claiming for yourself the forgiveness of God? Do you even understand the weight of your sin before the Holy God? Do you make light of it? Do you mock the cross of Jesus and all that He had to suffer just to atone for your sins? And you're willing to receive that but not to forgive someone who has offended you? No matter how much harm has been done to you, that is all finite. You see, if you refuse to forgive others, you show yourself to never have understood the magnitude of the gospel, of the forgiveness of your infinite debt against God. You show yourself to have never received truly by faith the transformative grace of God. And so beware, Christian, no matter what anyone has done to you, and I'm sure some of you have been hurt much, I'm not trying to belittle that, but no matter what, it is nothing compared to the offense that you have done to God, and yet He has forgiven you. As far as east is from the west, so far has He removed our transgressions from us. You cannot harbor unforgiveness. It is absolutely un- incompatible with the gospel of God's mercy. And look at how important this is, that it finds its place here in this very succinct prayer. You know, the Lord's Prayer is very short. There are only a handful of things that made its way here. But in this limited place, this takes up quite a few words, where we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. It's very important in God's eyes. And Jesus teaches us to pray like this regularly so that we might regularly remember what grace we have been shown. So that we might show ourselves to be like our Father in heaven who is merciful and behave like children of the Most High. So it is our daily spiritual necessity to always be growing in mercy, to be always humbling ourselves and growing in godliness 
in the likeness of our God. And lastly, the prayer ends with this, lead us not into temptation. Now, what is the sense of this prayer? Well, it's not saying that God tempts us with sin. If that were the case, that would mean that God himself is evil and he would be influencing us to do evil. But James 1.13 says very clearly, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God because God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own sinful desires. That is to say, all of our proclivity to sin is because of our own desires within And so God doesn't lead anyone to sin and temptation. Because notice how this petition is phrased. It's phrased negatively. Lead us not into temptation. And perhaps it would be helpful to consider the positive counterpart, which is to ask God, please lead me away from temptation. It is to ask God, guard me from temptation. Protect me from my inclination to wander away from the path of righteousness. You see, this prayer is teaching us to be aware of our great spiritual weakness. Now, earlier we saw that the prayer for God's forgiveness as a believer, the prayer of Christian repentance, is ultimately expressing a hatred of sin and a love for God. It comes from a deep-seated desire to no longer sin and live only to please God. But of course, through it all, the Christian can't help but realize just how weak he is to carry out his innermost desire to honor God in all things. And so it is essential to pray out of that same expression of love for God. Father, protect me from my own evil desires and temptations. Guide me away from the things that make it harder for me to resist sin. Help me and empower me to be faithful to you whom I love. And here too we see a vital sign of the new birth. A humble acknowledgement of the sin within. It doesn't take a regenerate Christian to pray. Protect me from all the evil out there. From all the violence. From all the corruption. From all the misdeeds of society. Who doesn't want that? Who doesn't want to be safe from dangers and harm? But only a true Christian, born again by the Spirit, can pray. Protect me from all the evil in here. Incline my heart to your word, that I may live it out with joy. Now church, let me ask you, how often do you pray for your own soul? How often do you pray for your sanctification? For your maturation in Christ. What weight does it have? What proportion does it carry in your prayers? What you pray for reveals what you honestly long for. You see, through these final petitions in verses 3 and 4, Jesus is teaching us to view ourselves rightly, holistically, as God sees us. We must be taught by God to understand the whole man and the sum of his needs. Now, what do I mean? Well, contrary to how the world thinks and teaches and indoctrinates, man is not just a body that happens to have some emotions and will. 
Just a clump of cells as a result of one giant cosmic accident. Do you realize how much faith you need to have to believe that? That's foolishness. And that's naturalistic philosophy that is fundamentally opposed to a biblical worldview. But God reveals to us through His Word that we are constituted as an inseparable union of both body and soul. Of both the material part of man and the immaterial, the spirit as it were. We are, it's a fancy word, a psychosomatic unity. Unity of soul and body. This is biblical anthropology. We are all eternal beings. We're not going to be annihilated out of existence after we die. Everyone, Christian or non-Christian, we're all eternal beings. The question is where we are destined to spend eternity. Whether that be an eternal life in the presence of God. Or eternal unending death. Cast out of God's presence finally and forever. You see, we are an inseparable union of both body and soul. And as such, we must understand that our spiritual well-being is paramount. Just as important as our physical well-being, if not more. In fact, notice the proportion of verses 3 and 4. We have one simple line in verse 3 for man's physical needs. Give us each day our daily bread. But in verse 4, we have two lines to address man's spiritual needs. There is a greater emphasis on the needs of the soul because it is more lasting. This greater weight simply reflects what Jesus said back in chapter 9 of uh, the Gospel of Luke. What good is it to gain the whole world but to lose your soul? It's not because your life on earth is unimportant. It's not because your physical needs God doesn't care about. No, clearly God cares so much about your every meal. Evidently, God cares about your physical needs even more than you do. Because we take it for granted all the time. But there is a greater weight for our spiritual health. Because what happens to our bodies, what happens to our possessions, what happens to the things that we have, or whatever life and reputation we have on earth, it is all temporary. It's all subjugated and confined to this fallen world. None of it will matter in the new world, life after death. But what happens here and now to our souls, that is permanent. And the effects presently carry over directly into eternity. And so we must learn to pray for our spiritual welfare, our spiritual health, our spiritual protection, our spiritual sustenance, just as much if not more as we pray for all of our physical welfare. We must get it into our minds that this is essential and we must continually be trained to give it the due proportion of our deepest desires and concerns in prayer. Church, may I exhort you to learn from Jesus and let Him define and order your life. This is not learned simply from years of life experience. You can't learn this just from getting around town. This is taught and learned from the Word of God alone. And perhaps some of us here need to humble ourselves and acknowledge today how much our minds need to undergo exhaustive spiritual detox because we have allowed ourselves for many years 
to be trained by the world, popular media, by culture, as to what is really essential in life. What good is it to tend to only your physical health to the neglect of your spiritual health, or even to tend to your physical health at the expense of your spiritual health? Beloved, entrust your whole life to God. He cares for you more than you do. And remember that in due time, you and I, we will all return to the dust. But then, in another due time, for all who are in Christ, He will raise our bodies from the dust that we might then put on the imperishable, incorruptible body fit for the glory of unending eternity with Christ. And so until then, let us spend every day that God graciously gives to us, striving to know Him more, trust Him more, and actively pursue our daily spiritual maturation in Christ. And may God help us to that end. Let's pray together. Gracious Father, we pray now that your name would be hallowed in our lives, that your kingdom would come, that your will would be done in our lives. Father, give us each day the bread and all of your provision that is sufficient for us. Help us to trust in your perfect measured care for us. And Father, forgive us for all our sins and we trust that if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins because Christ has paid it all. Sanctify us and purify us and help us to be a merciful people. Help us to be more like you, releasing the offenses done to us so that we might reflect your beauty and glory and light to the world around us, even to those who do us harm. And Father, protect us. Protect us from the evil within. And guard us and keep us into the end. We thank you for the gospel. That, it, that is the very seal of all of these promises and prayers. And now as we prepare our hearts to take the Lord's Supper that you have ordained for us. We ask that you would consecrate and set apart this ordinary bread and cup. And use it to minister to us. To engage all of our senses through this visible and tangible sign and seal of the gospel, to remind us of the finished work of Christ, the sufficiency of his atonement, that we might have the strength and empowerment to walk holy lives unto your glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.